Why would vitamin D, vitamin K2, and calcium give me brain fog? This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. This time around is from RB, who has a question about brain fog. And RB says, I've noticed that I experience brain fog, for example, forgetfulness, losing my train of thought, trouble recollecting and articulating words, when I increase supplemental vitamin D, calcium, or vitamin K2. Do you know why this might occur and what might mitigate it? Can this be caused by gut issues? Does this indicate I should not increase supplementation even if I'm below the RDA? For example, my dietary calcium is below the RDA. This happens at pretty low doses for me. For example, at, at supplemental vitamin D at 880 to 2000 IU, calcium at 150 milligrams, vitamin K2 at 180 micrograms of MK7, and individually for any one of those supplements when taken alone as well as when taking them all together. So this type of question is not so amenable to research and is much more amenable to trying to brainstorm the pattern that makes sense given your situation and all the other things we know about your case. So I, you know, I spent I spent the time kind of thinking about it rather than researching it because you're not going to find studies on supplementing low-dose calcium causing brain fog. So when I look at the pattern that emerges here, there is a very specific grouping where if you think about all the work that I've done laying out how vitamins A, D, and K2 interact to impact the calcium phosphorus economy, you have kind of two-thirds of the grouping missing the two others. So specifically, you have vitamin D, vitamin K2, uh, K2 and calcium, and you don't have vitamin A and phosphorus. And I'm inclined to think that there is some kind of imbalance here between the two. And from things that we've discussed about your case in the past, it makes sense to think about vitamin A because of the collection of symptoms that you have and the response that you have to vitamin A where it's where where we know that you seem to need higher higher amounts of vitamin A than we would expect to resolve vitamin A deficiency symptoms. Now, I would also think about something that I've written, but not for a very long time. So if you go back to the beginning of my work on the fat-soluble vitamins, well, the beginning of my work on the interaction of the fat-soluble vitamins. So circa 2004, I, I started writing about fat-soluble vitamins in general. My first article that I ever wrote on nutrition science was vitamin A, the forgotten bodybuilding nutrient for the men's health issue of Wise Traditions, the journal of the West Tennessee Price Foundation. But it was in 2006 to seven, and to some extent the years after that, but especially 2006 to 2007, where I did my most important work. And kind of the, the, the run-up to my most important work was my article on vitamin A and osteoporosis. And that was kind of the precursor to my work that incorporates vitamin, vitamin D and K2. 
in 2007 and the, or well, culminating with the Activator X article in, in 2007, identifying the Activator X of Western prices, vitamin K2. And if you go back to the article on vitamin A and osteoporosis, one of the things that you see is that vitamins A and D in animal experiments, their balance seems to influence the balance of calcium and phosphorus in the blood. So that although the, the big picture is that the cooperation of vitamins A, D, and K2 helps to put calcium and phosphorus into the bone and prevent them from depositing in soft tissues. And I've often talked about this in kind of a shortcut as to say calcium, but when calcium winds up in the bone, it's in a complex with phosphorus. And when calcium deposits in tissues, it's generally in a complex with phosphorus. It can also be in a complex, of course, with oxalate. And there are many other things that will in influence what calcium deposits as, including the amount of oxalate that's circulating, the pH of the urine, and things like that. But you know, generally, calcium and phosphorus exist in a pair wherever they go, in the gut, in the blood, in the bones, and you can have calcium phosphate deposition in all the soft tissues, the kidneys, the arteries, et cetera, cartilage, where, where it doesn't belong. You're trying to prevent that and promote it going into the bone. But a nuance here is that you, if you have vitamin A or vitamin D, completely out of balance, you're way more likely to get calcium pumping up in the blood versus phosphorus when you have vitamin D. And you are way more likely to get phosphorus pumping up in the blood relative to calcium when you have vitamin A, when you have, when you have a lot of vitamin A and, and, and you're deficient in vitamin D. Now, that then leads me to think, well, okay, do vitamins, you know, what would impact brain fog? And it's definitely the case that vitamin A regulates brain function in critically important ways. And I'll post a link that reviews some of the general evidence on vitamin A and brain function. But I'm inclined to think that if you're getting an acute impact of a supplement, that phosphorus is more relevant because the serum level of phosphorus, any any charged ion in the serum is an electrolyte and any imbalance in any electrolyte will cause acute problems during the time that it goes up and down in the serum. And I think this is a mistake that's very frequently made in the functional medicine community where there tends to be this belief that Conventional medicine does everything wrong, and conventional medicine measures serum levels of things, and the reason this must be wrong is because what you care about is whether nutrients are doing their function inside cells. That's very wrongheaded, because although there's a kernel of truth to it, which is, yes, you need these things inside cells, every single electrolyte in the blood especially has very specific roles of being in the blood. So there, there are relatively narrow concentrations of all these things that need to be in the blood before things go wrong. And things can go wrong because, well, so, I mean, anything being off in the blood is going to is going to cause the levels off in the brain because the brain, brain 
uh, transport of many things is proportional to the blood concentration rather than very regulated. You know, glucose, for example, if you take up glucose into your muscle, that's driven by the demand of the muscle and it's driven by the signaling from insulin about the supply. That's neither of those things are true in the brain. More glucose in the blood means more glucose in the brain. Less glucose in the blood means less glucose in the brain. End of story. And there's probably a, a lot of analogy to that with some of the with with some of the um, electrolytes. And then also the most most of the electrolytes, not phosphorus so much, but most of the electrolytes are playing some role in regulating nerve nerve function. You know, so just. If you're trying to contract a muscle, for example, you're dealing with especially sodium, potassium, chloride, to a lesser extent, magnesium, and uh, and calcium that are uh, that are basically transmitting the signal from start to finish to the release of the neurotransmitter, and then the ions come back into play once the neurotransmitter reaches the muscle cell and tells it to contract. I think with phosphorus, probably what is more relevant to the feeling of brain fog, I'm going to guess, is whether you have the phosphorus supply to energy-demanding tissues such as the brain being affected by the balance between the serum and the bone. So I think that having the vitamin D to vitamin A ratio imbalanced in favor of more vitamin D, less vitamin A, is in itself going to to compromise you to, in the direction of hypophosphatemia. And that if you do anything to shift calcium into the bone, it is going to come go into the bone with phosphorus and so you will be shifting phosphorus into the bone at the expense of the serum and if it's at the ex- if it's in the bone at the expense of the serum that means it's also at the expense of every tissue that would take it up from the serum and so that could be the brain or the peripheral nervous system or the muscles and so on and low phosphorus means low atp means you know, declining energy expenditure in whatever tissue it's impacting. And so if it's in the brain, uh, I would I would think in the brain is where that would drive uh, brain fog. Um, in the muscles, it would drive fatigue or dysregulated muscle function like tremors or, or things like that. So knowing that you have vitamin A deficiency symptoms and seem to need high amounts of vitamin A to get them under control makes me think that you're sort of perpetually in the margin like the even if you even if you're at the point where you've gotten them all under control you're you're still probably marginally vitamin A deficient you know if you, if you've just gotten rid of the clinical symptoms at the level you're at you, you basically have no reserves against the the negative symptoms. You're you're at the the exact point of of having resolved them, and if you're below that point, you're at negative reserves, right? So you know, and the, these vitamin D levels aren't that small. A 2,000 IU is a is a fairly 
reasonable dose of vitamin D relative to the average person's requirement. 150 milligrams of calcium is really small because there you're at uh, you know, something on the order of an eighth of the average requirement. K2, 180 micrograms, I think that's, I think that's a, a, that's fairly at the requirement in terms of a chronic sense, but it does surprise me a little bit how low the dose is because when I'm thinking of, um, when I'm thinking of what it would be doing, you know, I, I, a high dose of MK4, like if you were, if you were mainlining, uh, menatetronone, um, you know, synthetic MK4, 45 milligrams a day. I know that you're getting pharmacological inhibition of bone resorption, which would shift phosphorus into the bone. Because remember, you don't really care about whether you took the nutrient and then the ions of phosphorus that were currently in the blood went into the bone. You just care whether there's a net shift in the balance. And so because you're always engaging in bone resorption and bone growth, and it's always going back and forth. It doesn't matter whether you kept phosphorus from coming out of the bone or put phosphorus into the bone because it's always going back and forth. So if you shut off bone resorption, you have a, as a result of that, a net transfer of phosphorus into the bone because you, you know, you always have it going in. You always have it coming out. You stopped it from coming out, right? So that means more phosphorus winds up in the bone and less in the, in the serum while it's having that effect. And so that's real easy to see from a high dose of MK4 because we know it's a pharmacological inhibitor of bone resorption. I would think 180 micrograms of MK7 is um, is just acting as an enzymatic cofactor with no real gene expression. I'm not saying no gene expression, but no because the gene expression is mediated by MK4 likely. So some of this MK7 is converted into MK4 and some, and it will alter gene expression, but I would, it just surprises me because I wouldn't think you would get a very meaningful, like quantitatively impactful, um, change in gene expression. But, you know, it may be that, that you, maybe your MGP levels, matrix GLA protein, which is the protein that shifts calcium around into between the different tissues. The, that favors calcium going into bone at, and not into cartilage and blood vessels and kidney and other soft tissues. You know, maybe that you you chronically have that elevated beyond what the vitamin K is there to activate. And so when you put the vitamin K in, you have a sudden increase in the activation of that protein in a short time scale that does alter the calcium phosphorus balance. I do think that happens because my my suspicion remains that the people who are getting heart palpitations from from 180 micrograms of MK7, and I I have since heard of people getting the same exact symptom of heart palpitations from MK4 as well. I do think the likely explanation for that is shifting calcium into the bone away from the serum. And if your vulnerability is hypocalcemia, then you're making yourself hypocalcemic with the K2. But in your case, due to your uh, unusually high need for vitamin A, I think that your your marginal deficit or your vulnerability is probably hypophosphatemia rather than hypocalcemia. Um, and that actually, that's sort of 
wildly consistent with your past experience of relatively normal vitamin D causes causing hypercalcemia. Um, and you know, hypercalcemia will in general bias you towards hypophosphatemia because the more calcium you have, the more it'll bind to phosphorus and deposit somewhere. And if it deposits somewhere, it's being taken out of the blood. So if you have hypercalcemia, it's very likely to drive your phosphorus low because probably your hypo your hypercalcemia was up here, but then then and if your phosphorus was in the normal range, ca calcium complexes with phosphorus to go into the tissues, and now your calcium's still elevated. It's just not as elevated as it would have been if it didn't complex with the phosphorus, and now your phosphorus is brought from the normal uh, range into the low range. So, I mean, given that that's been your past vulnerability, if you're avoiding that level of hypercalcemia, um, then you might not be in it, but you you still your 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 vulnerability at the margins is for something to throw you into hypophosphatemia rather than to hypocalcemia. So, like the other pe class of people who get heart palpitations from 180 micrograms of MK7, you are getting uh hypophosphatemic symptoms from from mk7 that's resulting in brain fog so that's what i think is going on there so to go through some of the the comment thread on on this iris from denmark said i i have the same issue regarding calcium i get brain fog and other issues when i raise it even though i'm only raising it to a level where a parathyroid test is fine that's a test that shows if you have enough calcium or lack of vitamin D. For me, copper has worked and made me able to raise my calcium intake without problems, but I don't know why. I have to eat 10 milligrams of copper a day. I also get skin rashes, more fungal infections, and nerve pains when raising calcium. And again, copper has helped. So I think this is a different problem. One thing that I'd note is the amount of calcium that should maximally suppress your parathyroid is a lot higher than 150 milligrams for most people. And you didn't state the milligram amount of calcium that you're getting, but I, you know, I, it, calcium at, uh, it, uh, obviously your diet and supplements are interacting together. So I don't, I don't know what RB's normal calcium take from food is uh, on top of which this 150 milligrams is acting, but to take the 150 milligrams alone, that's way below what you would need to optimize your parathyroid hormone. And I also think if you need 10 milligrams of copper a day, and I recite, I know, Earlier, you you had higher amounts of copper, so this this is sort of on the back end, I believe, of of reducing the dose. Then, this is this suggests to me that you you have a defect in copper transport that you're treating with high dose copper, and that that calcium might be acutely hurting the copper transport. So I'm I'm not sure of that, um, but that's and I didn't. You know, I spent most of my prep time thinking about RB's case because that was the core question that got voted on. But the my my first suspicion would be really calcium is a it's a positively charged ion that has it comes in 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 fairly high amounts, right? Like so even hundred and fifty milligrams is a low dose of calcium, but it's fifteen times the very high dose of copper you're getting at ten milligrams. And so be, because it's in such higher amounts, high amounts of calcium can can overwhelm certain transporters. And I don't think a normal amount of calcium should overwhelm any of the gut transporters. But if you have a defective 
copper transporter, then it, you know, it might be that that transporter's defect does make it more vulnerable to copper, uh, to calcium inhibition. In other words, if it's maybe what is defective about it is the characteristics that make it high affinity for copper relative to calcium. And so that means that it's, it's differential affinity for copper versus calcium is now blunted. It's, it's kind of like, um, a lot of the, a lot of gene defects are, are thermolabile gene defects, which means that the enzyme is, uh, damaged by heat more easily than it should be. And, if if they cause if they cause defects in metabolism under under normal conditions that means that the thermal ability is vulnerable to body temperature and so mthfr is an example of this the c677t mutation of mthfr and this is kind of going off on a tangent but i think it illustrates the the, the copper calcium principle that i'm trying to get at the c677t polymorphism in mthfr is thermolabile the reason you get a 75% decrease in activity if you're homozygous is because your body temperature is too hot for the enzyme to function. And so you would almost certainly get another 15 or 20% decrease in enzymatic activity if you stay in a, a sauna long enough to raise your body, your core body temperature by a degree or, or degree and a half or something like that. And, uh, and so I, the analogy I'm trying to make is that a normal amount of calcium should not inhibit copper transport. Uh, a high, yeah, mega dosing calcium, sure, but a normal amount of calcium should not inhibit copper transport. But but you might have a, a defect in the copper transport that is hurting the differential, that is hurting the specificity of the transporter. And I'm speculating here totally speculating here but you might if if the defect in the transporter is the specificity for copper then that might mean that the normal amount of calcium in the diet that is helpful becomes an impingement on copper absorption uh in the same way that normal body temperature becomes an impingement on mthfr function if you're homozygous for c677t so hope that helps um, real quickly through the other comments, RB says, very interesting. You experienced the same thing with calcium. Also, in case it helps, I was using vitamin D from, uh, and she gives the brands. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to go through this because I think we, we covered it very well. So I don't think the, I, I don't think the brands are that important. I, I in fact, I think it's notable that, that pure encapsulations, from my experience, which is where RB was getting calcium citrate from, in my experience, people who have idiosyncratic reactions to supplements often don't have those reactions to pure encapsulations. And so I, I think the fact that you, that you were using pure encapsulations for the calcium citrate really underscores that this was a real effect of calcium. And of course, it could be an effect of citrate, but I, that's doubtful to me because the main way you increase citrate in your body is to eat food, especially carbohydrate. And so I don't think it's that. Um, and yeah, I mean, and you asked about gut function. I mean, it could be something in the gut, but the I'm looking for like, what do these three things have in common rather than 
what are all the possible ways that each one of them could potentially impact brain fog? I mean, there could be some idiosyncratic gut metabolism of all three of them producing some kind of toxic thing. But I think it's, if I'm trying to draw draw the dots together to come up with an explanation, I arrive at the one that I that I just gave you. So that was the winning question. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ MasterPass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a MasterPass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A, or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at chrismasterjohnphd.substack.com slash Q&A. That's Q&A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.